Hello and thank you for listening to episode 31 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave and in this episode and with me and the intro, unusual because I normally do the intros and outros by myself, but he's here. Um, it's, uh, d- does he need any introduction? <laughs> d- probably not. It's Ramrod. Hello. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm all ready with a beer. You're already with a beer now. I'm sure, hopefully by now, listeners would have listened to episode 30 and our, our four and a half hour epic about Hard Rock Hell, mate. Mate, honest have God. You, have you recovered? The last time I went four and a half hours, I was a young, young man. <laughs> <That was it>. <laughs> <laughs> and you had chemical help and all sorts. Yeah, so, I yeah. don't even remember it. But four and a half hours, let's never do that again, eh? <laughs> No, um, but you're here, yeah, to join me tonight, we're going to chat to Mick Garris, um, a guy who we've been fans of his work for like many years, me probably just a few years longer, but we've we've both seen all of his work and, you know, the, the very opportunity that we get to chat with him and spend um, 60 minutes or more chatting with him is just amazing, isn't it? Absolute, absolute pleasure. I mean, when we, when we start doing these things, you never think you're going to get to sort of literal legends and heroes. This guy's written The Fly 2, he's directed and written Sleepwalkers, he's behind Masters of Horror. He is one of the horror kings. If he yeah. was one of the big four, he'd be Slayer, Anthrax, Metallica or Megadeth. That's how important McGarris is to heavy heavy metal <laughs> horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> or if I was to say it, he would be the equivalent of Kiss, oh, Judas Kiss. Priest, um, Scorpions, I, I or Twisted made, Sister. <laughs> Iron Maiden. <laughs> no, definitely not Iron Maiden. Not in Mc, my book. McGarris, he's far better than Iron Maiden. <laughs> he's better than Iron Maiden. He is a horror legend. He is. He is definitely. So please, everybody, sit back, relax, get comfortable. And get ready for myself and Ramrod chatting with the amazing Mick Garris. Right, of course, let's start this off. Mick, thank you so much for joining myself and Ramrod this evening. Um, well, we're talking to you just off air. It's this evening where we are, but you're starting your day by having a chat with us, aren't you? It is 10 a.m. here in Los Angeles and a beautiful, sunny, uh, late autumn morning. Oh, so different here, so different. If we suddenly get cut off, it's because the house has been blown away at the moment. That's what it's like outside. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I, I dream. Wonder... <laughs> Our door is always open should you ever want to visit, mate. But you're more than welcome to come and have a look around the Welsh hills. Just make sure to bring a raincoat is all I'm saying. All right. I would love to. I've spent, uh, made many trips to the UK and one to Wales, but uh, never spent much time there, and I would love to. Well, there you go then. Next time. Um, I want to kick yeah. this off, uh, kick this off um, in a way that maybe uh, some interviews that you have hasn't started before. I want to ask you about the Horse Feathers Quintet. <laughs> well... <laughs> For some reason, it's somebody wrote it up as the Horse Feathers Quintet. There were five of us, but we were just playing Horse Feathers. Um, uh-huh. it, yeah, it was a band that I had in the 70s in my youth when my hair was not the color of uh, silver. <laughs> and, um, and we were kind of an all-original prog rock band in the ELP, Gentle Giant, Yes kind of mode, but we were also funny, too. We didn't take ourselves all that seriously, so... Um, but uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Everybody in the band played like three or four instruments each, and uh, there was a lot of complexity to it, and a lot of uh, 
messing about as well. So. <laughs> that sounds good. And you were, am I right in saying that you were the vocalist? I was. I was the lead singer and uh, one of the songwriters. And I played very bad claw piano and a little bit of rhythm guitar now and then. But usually I was just up front making an ass of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Is this something that you still continue to do now again? Do you still like to get up and, you know, knock out a tune? No, never. Um, that's that's way in my past. I loved it. It was one of the greatest times of my life, but I'm lucky to have had lots of greatest times in my life, including the period I'm in right now. So Exactly. Yeah, you've got so much going on right now, which, you know, we'll most definitely get to. Um, but myself, you know, myself and Ramrod are both huge uh, horror movie fans, uh, and the amount of work that you've done within the genre is just absolutely incredible. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your early life and how you got into movies and horror movies specifically as well? Well, I find that that a lot of people who are into either horror movies or dark fiction, or, or the people who make the stuff, the people who consume the stuff in the genre often come from less than uh, happy childhoods, you know, uh, broken homes. Uh, it, it's, I think you often turn to dark fiction um, in, as sort of a refuge and, and seeing uh, humanity in darkness that maybe people who have very happy Leave it to Beaver lives um, have not really experienced. Uh, I think when there is loss in your life, whether it's a, a breakup of your parents, as as happened to me in, when I was about 12 years old. Stephen King, I know, came from that kind of family. Although Clive Barker came from a very, very happy and healthy uh, parental upbringing and the like. But mostly, I think it's it's kind of a quest. It's a, a it's a, a look inside, and, and and I think that you know, if I'm going to play amateur psychologist, I think it does play a big part in, in people being drawn to mortality and, and the, the questions of, you know, are we here for a reason? Are we not? Do we continue beyond the pale? You know, the, the interest, if not the belief in ghosts and monsters and, and, and the darkness is something that doesn't usually come from a sunny household. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of my earliest uh, memories of what I watched on TV and went to the movies, you know, I read a lot of comic books and things, but um, I, I, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits were a big deal to me. The first writer that I became passionate about was Ray Bradbury. I read everything he did when I was 12 years old, and I think that really kind of launched me. And I think it has a humanism that often the genre is lacking. But people like him and Ray, Brad, Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Stephen King, those were guys that I read during my formative years. And um, the television shows, Twilight Zones and Outer Limits and, uh, uh, you know, the universal horror classics that played on TV every Saturday afternoon, things like that. Those, those were really kind of my, my launch pad. Um, you know, my, I had an older brother who was very, very popular in high school and everything and was an athlete and all of that stuff, as my father was. But um, I was the other side of that kind, a coin. I was a mind hopelessly trapped in a body, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned TV programs there as well. So television is sort of having a mini renaissance at the moment as well, isn't it? With some excellent TV series coming on um, and a lot of actors moving over from the movie side of it and doing television whereas normally they might have given it a second thought do you, do you think there's any particular well, reason for that 
Well, television is certainly better than it's ever been, I think. Uh, it's, it, it's really amazing, and I think it's because there are now so many channels available. The competition is so high, and movies are showing $200 million you know, special effects extravaganzas. They're, you go to the movies more for an event now than for a story being told. And television is intimate. You have the the fabled 500 channel universe is is upon us now, and the competition not just in production values but in storytelling values is is greater than it's ever been. And uh, there is quite a renaissance going on in TV, and it, I I feel fortunate that you know my career never intended to go more in the direction of television than in features because I didn't used to watch television much, but now that TV seems to have so much interest in quality. I'm, I'm lucky that that's kind of where my main home has, has been in the last couple of decades. Oh, yeah, and you've certainly been very busy within it. That's, that's for sure, um, which we're more than grateful for. That's, that's true. There Me is... too, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I let Ramrod get a word in edgeways, because <laughs> I know he's got a lot to ask you as well, um, what I'd love to know is, uh, because you've, you've worked within the, the, you know, within the industry for so long, is, this, is there anything that scares you on screen nowadays? You know, what was the last TV program or movie that actually made the, the hairs on the, neck of, the, on the back of your neck stand up? Well, the stuff that, that appeals to me the most is the stuff that comes from human monsters, not from, from big robots and, uh, you know, uh, giant lizards and things. Um, on television, the, I think the most exciting thing I've seen on TV in years is Hannibal, the TV series. I, I think there's kind of a beauty to its grotesquery. It's, it's, it's operatic in its, in its uh, bloodshed, in a way. Um, I can't say that I, I get scared much in movies or television, but getting a sense of the creeps and, and the artfulness of that show is something that really, really has had a strong impact on me. And uh, there are things like in the strain and, and, you know, it's such a good time for horror, American horror story. There are things it's it's more explicit than it's ever been before. But I think Hannibal is kind of the gleaming blood red jewel uh, out there right now, even though they're no longer making it. But it's quite a quite a, an amazing show. Mm hmm. Ramrod, I'm sorry, I've been hogging Mick all this time. No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just loving listening to you, Mick. On, I can only agree with what you said about Hannibal because I remember when I watched the first few episodes of series one, it made me feel unwell. And there's not many things <laughs> I agree with you that actually make you think I don't want to watch this anymore, but I can't stop. It's like that car crash sort of mentality where you, you just want to look just for pure fascination. Yeah, but yeah. It, there's, it, it, you you're right though. You can't, no. I like the, what you said about it being operatic, because it's exactly what it is. I feel more classy having watched it, but also very upset at the same time. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rare and wonderful feeling, isn't it? It, it? it is indeed, especially, you know, with the landscape of horror as it is now. I mean, we, like you say, we are lucky these days that horror is having this amazing renaissance in TV and on the big screen. People want to be scared, you know, and it's been said so many times that, like, in documentaries about horror, which you yourself have been so heavily involved in, that when there's a time in real life where there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of horror going on, people want to escape into it. I mean, it was a time mm -hmm. in, when, like when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out and again when 
like Wes Craven reinvented the horror genre again and again with Scream and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, obviously, with the the horror that's going on in the world with terrorism, again, people are still flocking to the cinema to see these things. It's weird psychology. It's really true. It's really true. It is a respite taking real bloodshed and and running away from it uh, in in the world of fantasy bloodshed. There's a great documentary about the the period uh, when movies, uh, the horror movies you were talking about with uh, Wes Craven and Toby Hooper and the like, uh, during uh, as a reaction to Vietnam, mm-hmm. called American Nightmare by uh, directed by Adam Simon. It's really a spectacular piece and very serious minded. That's another thing about horror today, too, especially around the world, is that here in the U.S., it's mostly intended for teenagers. So it's of, for, and about teenagers, um, whereas around the world, and even increasingly now in the U.S., horror is, is more adult fare. It, it really is more about the tension and the suspense and the reality of of this and not just about the gore and the splatter because if you're 17 years old it's nothing to whistle cra- uh, past a graveyard and and uh, not feel a sense of mortality and uh, you know there increasingly movies are and television are, are touching on on adult themes that that resonate beyond just the teenagers going oh how cool when he pulled his eye out <laughs> Yeah, that's really true because I remember like, going back into the 80s and when VHS was really big and we, we started renting movies and there was like, you know, The Evil Dead and then we had the, the whole video nasty thing over here in the UK mm-hmm. and there was... I was younger back then. You did, you know, you you cheered at the gore and so on, but you weren't necessarily scared. Whereas now, I think as you get older, you look for that bit more. And I think for me, I find it's it's what you don't show that scares you. What you just plant that seed in somebody's mind and let their own imagination take it into their own darkest corner that really begins to scare me. Yeah. Yes and no. For me, you know, I I, I can be affected with explicitness in in violence or gore or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, tension to me is much more important than, than the, I don't know, the red cum shot, if you want to call it that. But, <laughs> I like that. Uh, That's good. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, you know, I made a movie about that called Riding the Bullet that was based on a Stephen King story. It's kind of about a young man who he's an art student and everything he, he draws and paints is of the dark world because it's so glamorous and he's kind of the prince of darkness and he, he attempts a suicide because everything is so horrible about him and it's all uh, about him getting a call that you know his mother is dying and he's got to get home to her before she does and and someone he has to hitchhike home and he gets picked up and uh, this is a perhaps a minion of of the dark side who says um, okay take a choice your mom's dying you want to die uh, by the time we get to your, your mother's place, the hospital where your mother is, I'm giving you a choice. Either you go or she goes. And uh, if you can't make a decision, I'll take both of you with me. <laughs> so it's, it's a choice, a, a Sophie's choice that has to be made. And it's like, well, what's the big deal? Come on, you were going to commit suicide. She's old. She's uh, been smoking all her life. Uh, it should be a pretty easy choice. And so it's it's kind of learning that there's more to death than the cool artistry of it, you know, than than uh, death metal music or <laughs> or you know how how cool uh, it is in 3D when the the viscera comes splattering toward you, you know. Oh yeah. So 
it's just kind of a, a very small budget uh, meditation on that. That's excellent. That sounds really, you just mentioned 3D as well. What are your thoughts on 3D cinema? You know, because that was sort of revived again a few years ago and it still keeps appearing. Yeah. I, you know, in general, I'm not a fan of it. But in recent days, um, there's a movie, Everest, which was shot in 3D IMAX. And uh, yeah. the Chinese theater here in Hollywood has been converted into a magnificent 3D IMAX uh, uh, theater and Everest was fantastic and I'm sure nowhere near as good when in 2D and the very next week at the same cinema I went and saw The Walk the Robert Zemeckis movie about uh, mm -hmm. the, the guy who, who walks between the two World Trade Centers on a wire um, inspired by a documentary called Man on a Wire a true story yeah. and the 3D in that movie where he's actually making the walk, I was pounding my feet on the floor and <laughs> the tension was excruciating and it was amazing and it was a use of 3D I'd never seen before that seeing that film any other way would be incomplete. So I think there are times when 3D is fantastic and other times when it's a, just a gimmick to jack the ticket price up another five bucks. You know? Yeah, I think Ramrod you saw as well you saw Everest didn't you like myself in IMAX yeah it's it's a strange thing with cinema now and like, like going back to what you said about it being an event I do feel like going to the cinema now is a big deal it has to be the big huge budget 3D IMAX experience and it's very rare like with a film maybe like it follows or something like mm -hmm. that where you get a nice intimate human horror story with not a lot of splatter you don't really get the connection in cinema anymore i mean it, i think it's a lost art of sitting in an auditorium with 200 people and everybody being terrified because it just doesn't happen anymore that's the only problem with it yeah it's you know, horror and comedy, I think, are best shared experiences. Yeah. And uh, so, it, amazingly, though, that little movie, It Follows, was a huge success theatrically, which was a big surprise to me and encouraging. You know, I like all kinds of movies, not just the horror genre and the like. And I will always prefer the theater experience. But um, it seems that increasingly the smaller, more intimate films, like you were saying, uh, barely ever even reach the cinemas. I mean, I went to the movies yesterday and saw a film called The Danish Girl that, um, you know, it's a very quiet, artistic story about the first person to ever go a sex change operation in 1933. And um, actually a British movie. And uh, a great film that, even though it would have been perfectly great to watch at home, <clears throat> it was nice to watch it on a big screen in a darkened cinema and, and sharing the experience with an audience. Oh, yeah. And I think as well with, uh, I think the whole world at the moment seems to be Star Wars crazy. As we're talking about <laughs> a cinema experience, I think everybody's waiting for that to come up. Um, and again, am I right in saying that your first movie job, you were a receptionist with the, when, <laughs> when the original Star Wars came out? <laughs> On the original Star Wars, I, I would answer the phone. Star Wars, can I help you? Um, yeah, it was kind of an amazing situation. I was working at a Tower Records store at the time, and, and I was, I'd been writing journalism uh, for years, mostly about, first about music, then about film, and trying like crazy to get a job uh, in the film business. And uh, a friend heard that they were looking for someone at Star Wars. I didn't know what the job was or anything, and so I, uh, I went and met with them, and they hired me that day. So um, 
Yeah, it was great to, to to actually be involved from the very beginning and have these little knickknacks that that like the Christmas gift that George gave George Lucas gave everybody this uh, you know uh, lucite star with Star Wars carved into it and and frames from the film itself you know like five or six frames from the movie embedded in it and all kinds of little goodies like that but you know, probably. The coolest thing was operating R2-D2 on the Oscars in 1978 that year. It was just really, really. I am the, I am the Zelig of horror and science fiction. <laughs> That's so cool. You're so lucky. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty freaking great to have... R2-D2 was in my apartment for the night before so that I could leave and go directly to the <laughs> the next morning in the van. So I had R2-D2 in my little tiny apartment in North Hollywood, California at the time. So. Is he a heavy drinker, R2-D2, or is he quite a quiet housemate? Uh, well, he's very still. <laughs> That's marvelous. That's one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the the sideline things that don't get uh, talked about much are things like that, and that I was a zombie in Michael Jackson's Thriller, and and you know e even in high school doing interviews as a journalist and stuff, uh, I interviewed Rod Serling, I interviewed Ray Bradbury. When I was doing music journalism, I interviewed Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and all this stuff when I was a teenager. So it's a, a total other life that I, I had before I was lucky enough to do what I do now. Wow. Yeah, cause, yeah, I was going to ask you, you worked um, on an L.A. cable TV. Was it on the Z Channel? Was it Fantasy? The Z Channel. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Fantasy, Fantasy Film Festival. What was it like back then, going back to the 70s? Because some of the names that you've already mentioned, um, I was reading up, you know, the, the people that you talk to, the list is absolutely incredible. <laughs> well, the good news is I've taken the ones that I can find, all of those old interviews and my post-mortem interviews from a few years ago, and put them on a, on a website uh, called mickgarrisinterviews.com. So the Fantasy Film Festival interviews, we started in 79 and ended in 82. And we did about 30 of them. And uh, I had been writing for magazines and, and the like. And um, uh, I had this idea to do this interview. I was writing for the Z Channel program magazine. And I, I went to the program director there, and he... he uh, liked the idea and said put together a list of movies and the guests you've, you'd have um, and let's see what we can do and so we did it and I actually got Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter and uh, Toby Hooper and William Friedkin and all these people to to talk about their movies and, and uh, it was amazing Z Channel was non-commercial it was a pay TV channel and so, you know, we'd run Close Encounters and run the interview with Spielberg before that. We would run The Fog and run the interview with John Carpenter before that. And, and it was really a remarkable opportunity for me to learn. And then when we did Postmortem 30 years later, um, a lot of the guests were the same people 30 years later, John Landis <laughs> and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and it was, uh, William Friedkin. It's just amazing to be able to watch them back to back, which you can do now on the site. Oh, I'm so I'm so pleased that your post-mortem interview is like freely available now. Uh, and for anybody listening, if if 
for some strange reason you haven't watched them, I urge everybody to go and watch them. Um, a link will be on the, the show notes on our website because, uh, in all honesty, there's some fantastic interviews on, on there, Mick, and it must have been such a buzz for you to do them again, like you say, all these years later from when you first talked to them back in the 70s. Well, it was so great because, you know, I was just a kid doing them originally and, and new to the, to the business and not really in the business, just writing about it and stuff. And then 30 years later to be a filmmaker and talking, you know, first series was done as a fan and journalist uh, and a very nervous, not very good on camera host. Uh, <laughs> and then 30 years later, still not very good on camera host, but as, as someone who is in the same business and can speak to them as, as a fellow filmmaker and the like. And it, it really, it, it's fascinating to watch. I don't really watch the old shows, but it's just to see the, uh, a couple clips now and then that someone will post. And it's like, wow, this is, uh, they're both two different worlds, even the interviews that are more recent. And we're doing, by the way, a new series of, of postmortem interviews. I just shot three of them down in Mexico in October, and we are going to uh, premiere them uh, on a new 24-hour horror channel that's starting early next year in Mexico. Uh, and they're, being, they're looking for places around the world to carry them. So they will be available to you. Excellent news. Excellent. And of course, one of the interviews as well is, you know, with Wes Craven, you know, who we sadly lost this year as well. Yeah, what a what a great guy he was, you know. Um, we, the Masters of Horror show, which I'm sure we'll get to, will um, kind of came out of a series of dinners for horror directors that I had put together that we'd been doing for a dozen years or so. And he came to several of them, and it's it's just a social thing. We all get together and shoot the shit, you know, um, just it's a friendly social gathering and Wes was so great and he came to them and and we hadn't had one in like six months or a year and and when he passed I knew we had to do one and we had 35 horror directors all in one place just because everybody loved Wes so much um, he was just a, a really really wonderful guy and a, a good friend who uh, everybody loved that's I mean it's one thing that gets me sort of irritated slightly is when people who are not into the horror genre and they suddenly associate everybody that makes them and who likes watching them are some sort of crazed weirdos and sort of serial killers but in in my experience the people who are behind these movies are some of the nicest people you're ever going to meet yeah i agree with you i think maybe it's because we do our dreaming while we're awake um you know that uh, we also get out the darkness in our work Mm -hmm. and, and it makes us uh, lighter people in a lot of ways. Not all of us, but um, some of the sweetest, most caring and, and loving human beings that I know work within this genre. And also, I think there's something to uh, the quality of us being underdogs. You know, there's not a lot of respect in the industry for anything except the money that horror movies make. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's one of the reasons uh, these these dinners have been so important to us and, and so much fun is that it's kind of a we're all in it together kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's a shared experience that... You don't have any other genre that has, you don't get Western conventions around the world or film festivals. You don't get comedy film festivals and conventions. You get horror and science fiction conventions and horror even more than science fiction. And, um, you know, I think it's because 
it's mostly the outliers. You know, we we are the outsiders who, although it's become more mainstream, it's still, you know, the people in the fringes who are drawn together by this. And so often they are people who are not social or, or uh, with huge gangs of friends other than on Facebook. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that bonds us. You know, we are the people who know who directed, uh, you know, uh, Chainsaw 3 or <laughs> something. <laughs> so, yeah. It's really true, that is, because when I was a kid growing up, obviously in the 80s here, and there was a, a small cell of like three or four of us that all loved horror and heavy metal. It just kind of went hand in hand back in the 80s. And we yeah. were the only ones that knew these things. We used to sit there and watch The Thing. And we were the only people who knew what it was. And it was like an elitist group we were in. And it, it still feels the same now, even though, like you say, it's so mainstream. Still, like you say, if I can just wow somebody with who produced this and who directed that, yeah. I, I feel really smug about it still, <laughs> even though I'm like 35. <laughs> well, it gives you part ownership, too. And, exactly. and genre fans are the ones who buy the Blu-rays. You know, nobody's buying physical media anymore, but the genre fans do. And you feel connected to it. You feel uh, an ownership to it. You feel, uh, yeah, that you're part of an elite. And speaking of the thing, by the way, I did the making of the thing back in eighty one. You 82. did indeed. You you were very <laughs> prolific at these making ofs. You were you were well, living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like being on set there at the thing? Then was it cold? Uh, kind of amazing. Well, <laughs> even uh, in California on the stages at Universal, where the, they shot the interiors, Carpenter refrigerated the stages so that you could see breath and. Yes, it was really cold. And then to go to the, the location in British Columbia, um, it was just past uh, Alaska, outside of Alaska on the other side. And um, it was really cold. It was on a glacier. They built the set on a glacier. And it was freaking freezing, you know. And I'm a California boy. I'm not used to that shit. So, yeah, it was it was quite an experience, but really amazing. And uh, I was only up on that location for a few days. Uh, in fact, it was 33 years ago because it, I, I spent my birthday on a... Uh, on a barge in British Columbia, you know, every the crew lived on a barge on the water right off of uh, of uh, British Columbia. Have you got any um, behind-the-scenes stories from those days when you were making those making-of um, movies? Um, God, it's really hard to say because usually when the the crew is invited to do that stuff, um, it's because it's stuff that isn't secret. <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, on the thing, though, Carpenter would not allow any still photography of any of the effects. And he was really right, because whenever you see pictures taken of that stuff, it looks like rubber and latex and caro syrup and all that stuff. So he said, the only time you're ever going to be able to use pictures of the monsters of the thing is using a frame blow up. And, you know, it was a 35 millimeter frame, same as the 35 millimeter still footage that they used. Um, but um, he was really smart. Uh, he would not allow any of that stuff out because when it's not in motion, it looks like shit. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's movie magic. But, you know, the, some of the things that I saw were, 
interesting but not necessarily fascinating unless you're a, a complete buff like the three of us are mm. um you know it was it was it was great to watch poltergeist being put together and and you know seeing um toby and steven at work on 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 the set and all of those things but uh, well most interesting maybe was i don't think anybody knows that steven spielberg shot a lot of the second unit stuff on the goonies um, you know, there's a jail room escape and things like that, that, uh, Stephen did a lot of that because they had a, a certain, um, schedule that they had to meet. And Richard Donner was doing all of the A, a unit work. And then Spielberg was doing a lot of the stuff side by side at the, at the Warner Brothers studio at the time. So that was pretty amazing to watch. Oh yeah. yeah. Can I ask as well, obviously being on set with Poltergeist, and there is a lot of, always over the years, been a lot of talk of who actually did all the directing on Poltergeist, because everybody still says, that's a Spielberg film. You can tell. What was it like well, on set? Well, you know, they were both there on set. And Toby is a good friend of mine, and Stephen and I have worked together often over the years in a really, really friendly, close way. Um, <clears throat> and... Both of them were working on it. Stephen wrote the shooting draft for Poltergeist and a very, very excited uh, and invested filmmaker. And so he would be there and he would throw in ideas like, how about a two-shot here, things like that. But Toby was the guy who had prepped everything, who, you know, most of a movie is made during prep rather than in your shooting, which I learned when I was doing Amazing Stories, that uh, trying to learn uh, directing and, and the like it happens mostly off the set, not on the set. And so, yeah, Stephen was there and Toby was there calling action and cut and, and fulfilling his vision. And it was a very much a, a shared vision between the two of them. Oh, thank you. I've always wanted to dispel that myth. Because <laughs> it's <laughs> well, been going... Well, no, Stephen was very involved. Uh, you know, it's, it's not so much a myth as an exaggeration. Right. Stephen was on the set every day and involved and contributing creatively. But in the end, it was a film by Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. You mentioned as well about John Carpenter not wanting the, the stills of the thing going out because the practical, practical effects didn't look too good when you just took one shot of them. Now, the three of us, we've grown up watching movies and it's like purely like practical effects going through now to CGI. What are your thoughts on you know the, the heavy CGI in a lot of movies nowadays? Well, a lot of people hate it, uh, but I say whatever the best tool is to make something realistic. You know, it's very difficult to make CGI effects have weight and, and density and, you know, feel lifelike. But, <clears throat> you know, you, you couldn't have done Jurassic Park without it. And I still look to that, even though it's one of the first CG creature movies ever, as one of the best ever. It works. Those dinosaurs have weight and they move and they, you know, if you can do it where you're not constantly feeling like you're watching a video game, I think it's fantastic. But the best tool for the job is what to do. I, I've used both extensively, obviously, because I've been around for a while. Um, I've done a lot of practical effects and still do. Yeah. Um, but CGI I've used really well, too. There was uh, an episode of uh, my first episode I directed of Masters of Horror, Chocolate. Um, there's a murder scene where you're seeing through the eyes of a woman who's being made love to, shall we say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and she horribly murders him. And she, we see through her eyes as she has her both hands around the hilt of a butcher knife that goes up 
into his sternum and starts gutting him from beginning to end. You could not do that with practical effects as realistically and as shockingly as that. Yeah. So uh, it was a combination of we put the um, we put a a uh, a practical piece that was sculpted on a latex piece sculpted onto his chest and belly that we painted out. Um, there was no blade in the in the knife hilt that she was holding, and so she stabbed nothing up to the hilt, and then as she's gutting him. We erase, we cover it digitally so it looks like he's bare chested, bare stomach, and then take that out and pump blood through the device that's attached to him. And so you get real blood, fake blood, and you're revealing the wound as it's being made, but it was already in place and painted out. So, it, it, you know, you use a combination of physical and, and digital effects to do something incredibly horrifying. Hmm. And you know, uh, there's a scene in, in John Carpenter's second Masters of Horror where somebody gets a, a, a shotgun to the head that blows part of his head away. You could not have done that realistically um, before having CG for that. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a great, great tool that's only getting better. But it requires really terrific artists to yeah. do it. Yeah. I'm presuming then that you, um, as a writer it opens up the scope of what you can envision to put on screen then, knowing that we've now got this technology, that there's so much you can do with practical effects, and then if it needs to go to CG, you can go a, a little bit more out there with what you what you write down and ultimately ends up on screen. It's very freeing. Uh, but, you know, i got to say that back when Star Wars came out and, and the extensive use of blue screen had never been done before like that, and uh, when the thing came out and all of the, the physical makeup effects that Rob Bottin did were so amazing, even at that time people said, you can make anything now that you can think of. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a fraction of what you can do now, so uh, I wonder what it's going to be like, you know, in another 10 years, what the technology will be. Will it be experiential? Will you feel it, you know? Or will it just be another th gimmick like 3D is for most movies? So, yeah, it is incredibly freeing as, as a writer and as a filmmaker. Um, but, uh, you know, storytelling is always going to come first. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Sorry, Dave, go on. I was just going to jump in on the special effects there. Yeah, do it, do it. Obviously, like with films like Gravity now, and as you're talking about the storytelling, that's what made Gravity, you know, it was this spectacle. But I think directors like David Fincher uses CG in such a subtle way that you don't actually know it's going on. And maybe that could be pushing the technology forward is that it's not obvious. It's so subtle. I mean, you could go back to when you made Sleepwalkers. I mean, there's some lovely, lovely special effects for back in the day when it was still in its infancy then. And I still think yeah. they hold up now. Well, it was only the second Morph movie to come out. And yeah. the first one was Terminator 2. And it was... Uh, we were being made, we were doing it before Terminator 2 came out, so we'd never seen any of the other Morph stuff, except the company who did our, our CG was PDI, who had done black and white with John Landis and Michael Jackson at the time, so I'd seen what they were capable of doing there. But even that, you know, we combined it with motion control, which is completely outmoded now. It's a horribly clumsy, time-consuming process that enables you to move a camera and see things change but uh, the budget was such that if we did a camera move 
for example, there's a push in on on Alice Krieger as she's morphing into a uh, her sleepwalker mode. But I had to push in and then come to a stop before we could do the uh, the morph on her. Um, so I was tricking the audience into thinking that they were getting close as it was happening. But that would have been so time-consuming and outrageously expensive. Now you can do it quite simply. But I had to do the motion control, stop at the end, freeze it, and then bring her back into her makeup effect look and all that. And, and it was just kind of a, a poor man's version of what you can do now on a Roger Corman budget. You know? <laughs> it, it, still, it still looks good, Mick, honestly. I, I, I would say it really holds up really well because it was quite brave at the time, I should imagine, to, to take that jump into using this technology that hadn't really been proven. And a lot of films look so dated from back in those times, but yours looks ace. I just got to say it. <laughs> well, thanks. We had a, a midnight screening at a cinema here uh, just a couple of months ago of sleepwalkers and uh it was packed it was great the audience had a wonderful time and i got brian Krauss and machen amick and and cindy pickett a bunch of and tony gardner who did the makeup effects and a lot of people came and did a q a afterwards and it was just an amazing experience so it's hard for me to watch something that's that's you know twenty some years old, uh, and 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 not cringe. But um, but it was an amazing time. So thanks, I, I appreciate. Yeah, it. it's a great film. I re- I've got to say, I love it. <laughs> and isn't it great as well though that you know that all these movies um, have got the longevity that they have. And you know, you mentioned earlier, Mick, about uh, fans of the horror genre really are so fervent and and stick to what they love and dig deeper into it and that these movies live so much longer and films that were lauded at the time whose budget were 10 times the amount and probably won so many more awards um but then you jump forward 30 odd years um and it and it's you know the likes of sleepwalkers and so on and many other movies that you've worked on that have still got the fan base that go back to it and love it whereas the other movies have just they've been forgotten by the mainstream it's kind of amazing, especially, you know, in the case, my first feature film I directed was Critters 2, which was a disaster in theaters. Nobody <laughs> went. And uh, and now, you know, it's seen more now than it was then. And it's screening. I've gone to several theatrical screenings in recent years of Critters 2, and they're packed. And we, I remember going opening day to my local cinema here up at Universal City. And there were two people in the audience, and I just wanted to shoot. So. <laughs> and, and something like, you know, E.T. was the biggest movie of all time for years and years, and nobody thinks about E.T. anymore, but they do about Jaws and Indiana Jones and, and other Spielberg films, whereas that was the one that did more than any other of his films as far as box office and respect and all of that thing. But, you know, nobody thinks much about E.T. anymore. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Critters 2 then. I mean, also uh, The Fly 2, uh, which was yeah. a, a major part. And what's it like when you come in to a, a movie um, franchise almost and you're working on the second one of it? Is there more pressure on you coming into that than trying to like create something original? Well, yeah, in a way, because you're trying to deliver something new and yet not go too far away from what the audience wants you know, what appealed to them from the first movie, and a lot of misjudgments are made in, in, in the world of series or sequels, um, franchises and the like. Uh, in the case of Critters 2, 
Um, there had the, the original movie was not all that successful, but successful enough to warrant a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was already an existing script that was sent to me to look at to see if I would be interested. And they asked me to do the rewrite on that. And so tried to do something that, you know, really had as it was a much bigger budget, much bigger. It was four million dollars instead of two million dollars um, in these days of two hundred million dollar movies. But, you know, trying to instill a sense of, of fun and love of this kind of movie and characters that that were interesting and things like that. Um, you know, in, in the case of Fly 2, it was very different because um, I was the first writer on that. I was brought in. Actually, David Cronenberg had recommended me, which was awfully nice. And um, I had an idea for something that I was really excited about uh, that, that I pitched to the studio that they liked and I was writing. And then they had the head of the studio was fired and replaced by somebody else who was fighting with the producer or the production executive who handled this. Yes, um, Scott Rudin, who's since become a hugely successful uh, producer of great movies. And um, so while they were fighting about wanting it to be a teenage monster movie or something a little more interesting in line with the Cronenberg film, I had been offered Critters 2 and was able to say, okay, I'm done, bye. <laughs> and, uh, so, but, but in something like Psycho 4... Um, you know, I was a huge, huge fan of, of Psycho, like anyone in the genre would have been, particularly with gray hair. Um, <laughs> and and two was a great movie as well. And three, uh, you know, was not well received and not successful. So I thought that there was enough distance. The script was by the, the guy who'd written the original Psycho script, Joseph Stefano, who also created The Outer Limits, by the way. And... Um, it was a great script, and I was asked to do it, and, and I, I was just really naive thinking, you know, yeah, I, we can make a really good movie out of this, a really respectful and, and exciting film. And we did, but it was, um, you know, there was one review. It was mostly good reviews. It was well-received, but it was made for television here and shown theatrically in other places. But yeah. one quote from a review that I'll never forget that, Director Garris is to Hitchcock what Peoria is to Paris. <laughs> so <it> was, Ow! <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so that one I should have tattooed on. <laughs> but, who uh, who cares know. what the critics say? Who cares? Oh, yeah. Who does yeah. care? Well, I... if you have box office, you can say who cares about the critics. <laughs> or if, critics, if you have good good reviews you can say who cares about the box office but if you don't have either that can be a painful experience because you know if if you're making films or writing books or or painting paintings it's a mode of communication and if you don't reach one segment of the audience at least then you failed at what you do so you have to care um you know the people who say they don't i either admire them or think they're liars um, because the whole thing is is communicating and telling a story. You're not telling a story to yourself. That's just masturbation. Um, <laughs> you're, trying to, you're trying to reach an audience, and and to me, it's an important element. You know. I was going to say, I do I do love all four of the Psycho movies, um, and I was hesitant, obviously, you know, because the the first one is so iconic, and the the, yeah. the huge gap. 
between that one and then the sub subsequent sequels. Um, I've got to ask you though, because Anthony Perkins directed number three, so then mm -hmm. we go on to, on to number four, and then you come in <laughs> as, as a director. <laughs> I mean, what, was there a, a little bit of tension between you? Did he want well, think he should have been directing four? <laughs> Well, he wanted to direct four very badly, but three was so badly received and so unsuccessful. So there was definitely a chip on his shoulder. And here comes the studio hires the guy who directed Critters 2 to direct Psycho <laughs> 4. And he wanted to direct it. And he's a very accomplished actor and a really, really intelligent guy. But he also was an eccentric guy. And, you know, he had to approve me as director, which he did after we had a lunch together. But he was, he was a complicated guy and, and sometimes difficult to, to deal with. But it was difficult because he, he cared and he had a lot of passion for his work and, and was a very, very, very bright man with a lot of experience working with Hitchcock and Orson Welles and, uh, you know, John Ford and all these, these great filmmakers before him so yeah it was complicated and and he would test me a lot and and you know do things that would kind of grind production to a halt at times to have a discussion in the middle of a 60 person crew trying to do their work um but at the end of it uh we screened it to him at the main screening theater at, at universal studios is the alfred hitchcock theater conveniently enough <laughs> and so we showed it to him there, and he could not have been more effusive in, in how wonderful he thought it was. He was went on and on to the point of embarrassment, saying how it was the greatest sequel of all of them, and and uh, you know just incredibly nice. But but it was it was a lot of work getting there. Oh, I should imagine so. It's um, I haven't seen it for a few years. It's one I've got on my rewatch pile. I need to rewatch it because I've watched it a good few times, but I do. I do remember enjoying like every one of the Psycho films. Um, yeah, yeah. That, there's. I, I think Ramrod, you need to sit down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is definitely, <laughs> and we've we've. God, how can we have not already have mentioned? We've skirted around it a little bit. Uh, Masters of Horror. If there's anybody uh, listening to this that may be on a desert island somewhere that <laughs> has no idea about Masters of Horror, please can you give them some information and tell them all about the genesis of it and you know how it came to be and uh, you know because it's it, it's so huge. Well, Masters of Horror was an idea that I'd, I'd been pursuing for a long time. You know, since my first work was on Amazing Stories on an anthology series, I kind of grew up on those things like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. But I had, as I'd said earlier, put together a series of dinners for, for horror filmmakers. And, you know, we would meet each other uh, at festivals or conventions or, or, you know, film functions and things. And... Uh, just talk about not really having our own uh, our own say. Things were getting increasingly difficult for for filmmakers to do things their way, and so I basically came up with the idea of a format where we would say, "Look, here are the best filmmakers in this genre, and they will do what they make best, but you have to give them total freedom and uh, let them make the movies that they want to make." Because we want their voices, we want their visions to be captured on film. And so we pitched it to a few places, and the very first place we went uh, said, well, how much and when can you start? <laughs> and so basically what we did was get the best filmmakers we could um, in the horror genre, 
uh, and offer them the opportunity to do a one-hour show. Not a lot of money, not a lot of time, but um, complete creative control. And so Toby Hooper and John Carpenter and John Landis and Dario Argento and Takashi Miike and, you know, lots of really, really great filmmakers thought this would be a great idea. And they came in and we gave them their heads and, and um, they often made some of the best stuff they've made in years and, and uh, just showed that they really knew what they were doing, especially when they were doing it on their own. And so my job as, as the producer and, and lining everybody up was basically to ask as a cheerleader and to protect them, you know, and keep it, keep it safe and happy and, and let them do what they want to do without having to think about interference from a network or a studio or an advertiser or anything because we made it independently and then it was licensed around the world by TV networks. I mean, Ramrod, I'm sure I speak for you too when I say that one of the things we love about Mick is that he gets all of our heroes together. You've got this you know, fantastic <laughs> yeah. ability to get all of these people who we, who we love and admired and have done since many years ago. Yeah. And, we're, and we're so grateful that, you know, all of you guys continue to produce stuff for us and you get everybody together. And the very thought of everybody in that same room, you know, if, if we could be a fly on the wall, we, we, would, <laughs> we would give a left arm or something for 10 minutes to be a fly on that wall it's it's you know well, thank my, you so much for they're that. my heroes too yeah well sure they're my heroes too and and we all genuinely like each other and everybody gets together and everybody's on the same side and they're all pulling for each other you know because we are all in it together and and there are a bunch of people in our way and uh, it's just it's all about encouragement which is you know my philosophy in filmmaking too is is you find and you encourage and you allow the best people to do their best work and so it's it's really great to be able to occasionally be in a position to do that and masters of horror was was probably the greatest opportunity to do that that i've ever had and maybe ever will have so uh, i'm really glad it worked out as well as it did that must have been so sort of unprecedented you know before and since for the amount of freedom that you got you know to to do what you want to do completely completely unprecedented and yeah we haven't been able to do it since but the, the i think that we will you know there's there's some stuff in the works that i think is going to have the same philosophy it's going to work out yeah well i want to come on to a couple of things because something i want to ask you is you know as we move into well as we move into we're already into you know the digital <laughs> age um please tell everybody about you know let's start with trailers from hell yeah, that was uh, Trailers from Hell was an idea that Joe Dante had, and it's really his site, um, that uh, you get a bunch of filmmakers together to take uh, trailers from films that are either personal to them or, or that they love or, or have some kind of connection to, and they do a commentary and, and give their impressions of the, of the trailer for the film, not the film itself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the filmmakers will even talk about the trailers of their own movies. I've done a few of mine on there. So I was one of the first uh, of the gurus that came on board, me and John Landis and, and uh, Guillermo del Toro and lots of really interesting people. And uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they'll post a new one on trailersfromhell.com. And it was just a brilliant idea that Joe had. And Joe is a huge film collector. He's got prints of hundreds and hundreds of prints of films and all these trailers and everything. And, and it's just really a lot of fun to, to have people 
to watch these some of the trailers are insane and to have people who are inspired by them i like to limit it to to films that really had an effect on me in my in my upbringing either as a kid or as a budding writer or filmmaker or whatever uh and and something that has a personal connection to me and so you'll hear a lot about the old uh, uh el cajon theater i used to go to when i grew up in in this suburb in in southern california and uh so um it, it's just really a great insight not only into the movies that they're talking about but the filmmakers themselves there does seem to be, I mean, I've, I'm on record that if I know I want to watch a movie, I will not watch the trailer for it now. <laughs> and I know that Ramrod, you especially, you put something online the other day about the Superman versus Batman trailer and how oh. it, gives, it gives a lot away. Um, it seems to be that trailers have changed, have morphing quite a lot and seem to be more spoilerific. For, you know, yeah, for I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of with you on that. I, I don't like watching trailers online. You know, I don't like to know too much about a movie before I see it. I'll do it afterwards. You know, mm -hmm. then that's when I learn about a movie that I cared about. But um, I just, you know, want to know just enough of if it's something I want to see or not. Yeah. It's it, so difficult now, though, isn't it, to avoid anything that you're interested in? Well, if you go online, not only the trailers, but all all the people posting on Facebook are, are spoilerific. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, you cannot get away. I'm watching The Walking Dead at the moment. I know we're on a season break, but what the hell? It, we're a day behind the U.S. over here, and I might as well not bother because yeah. everything is online immediately. I mean, Don't go shame. online until for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because like, I think with the way trailers used to be, like I think one of my favorite movie trailers ever is for Cameron's Aliens, where it's just the score and a quick few flashes of the movie, and that's all we mm -hmm. need. Now we are getting so overwhelmed with everything, and everything's yeah. being thrown at us, and we're being shown too much. And like we do like the mystery, and that's the thing with a horror movie, especially with surprises. I still like going and discovering old movies. Like only last night, I watched Slumber Party Massacre one and two <laughs> for the first time in my life. You know, and it was it was a yeah. it was. A joyous experience i didn't like two as much as one but just to go yeah. back and i didn't know when these these films are 30 years old you know it's a shame now but i think yeah. go, going forward as well though with the genre as it is now obviously i saw you pop up in uh, adam green's digging up the marrow which I, th <laughs> yeah. I thought was such a great old school sort of feel you know and you didn't really know what was going to expect in it are there any horror directors now you you admire that you you look forward to watching the output of or you have a lot of hope for uh, you know there are a lot of people i find interesting i think probably the, one of the most amazing filmmakers of all um is guillermo del toro and you know he's he's got such a mind of an artist um particularly his spanish language films just knock me out um but uh you know the the woman who did the babadook um uh, and she's i thought that was fantastic a lot of films from spain and, and north korea, uh, south korea uh impress me australian films you know specific filmmakers um it's hard for me to come up with names because you know, I'll go to festivals around the world and see really interesting things, but it'll be like one at a time. Uh, I think Ty West does a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, you know, there's, I like to see new stuff. There are a lot of guys with hair my color who, who really don't like how horror is changing and the like, but evolve or die, you know, I, I, I really 
I, I like to keep doing new things and experiencing new things, especially when it comes to uh, work from around the world. International storytelling has always fascinated me. Yeah, the, Jap- the Japanese horror as well, yeah, is, we're missing incredible. that. Yeah, well, Miike, you know, does a, a, a new movie uh, every six weeks, it seems like, and <laughs> none of them resemble one another in any way for the most part. You know, something like Audition could only come out of Japan, and it's just a masterpiece. You know, it's, uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm aware of the new stuff, and I seek it out, but I, I, I'm often not connected connecting it to the names of the filmmakers yeah i think i think with international filmmaking like i say i miss japanese horror because there doesn't seem as much coming out there was like that period where it come but france is doing some stuff a film like martyrs which unfortunately i think is getting remade now isn't it but it's one of the most incredible horror films i've seen well, there's there's great great stories being told by filmmakers who have a vision. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Mexico recently, and and there's a real renaissance going, or I should say, a renaissance uh, going uh, in in Mexico in the genre. Uh, you know, it, it seems like a lot of the cultures that are steeped in Catholicism have a kind of backlash that's very uh, blood centric, um, in, in the genre, you know, you, you get, uh, really interesting stuff that comes out of, uh, religion and legend and myth. Mm-hmm. I know uh, Ramrod, you just brought up digging up the marrow and Mick, you were in front of the camera there. <laughs> it's, uh, you've been in front of the camera quite a few times, actually. Uh, is this something you would, you would, have liked to have done more would still like to do more what's the difference between you know being the camera pointing at you to you being able to control what the camera does are you comfortable in front of the camera (laughs) not at all not at all (laughs) i do it for fun and to experience so i think it helps you as a filmmaker to know what it's like to be on the other side when uh, you know when the camera's on you but you know i was in a band i got my glory days doing that and being fronting the band and all um and doing the interview shows is fun but i i you know take second banana to the guest i'm just <laughs> there to get information out of them and i'm a really shitty actor you know i uh, I, I don't have uh you know actor looks i don't have actor chops and i'm really not interested in that sort of thing uh but uh, thank god there are people who do and uh, no, I, I do it for fun, and and directors never work together. So when a director asks me to do a cameo, uh, it's lots of fun to do, and I've done it with many other directors. You know, I've given Clive Barker has worked for me three times as an actor. Toby Hooper has done it. John Landis has done it three times. Uh, Stephen King has been an actor for me a handful of times, and you know, it it really is more play and to have friends on a set is incredibly encouraging and you know it really lightens the load a bit yeah to share it with people that you're intimate with well that leads me um i i'm well aware of the time that we've had with you already we do appreciate it and we are called 60 minutes with but we have got a bit of a reputation for going a little (laughs) bit over now and again so if you could please i've got uh, there's two things i have to ask you before uh, before before we say, unfortunately, say goodbye. Sure. Um, you mentioned about working with friends and so on. You've had such a fantastic working relationship with Stephen King. Um, please, could you tell us, you know, how that came to fruition, uh, and again, the longevity of it? You know, you've worked with him so many times on different projects. And we're hope. 
thing to there's a couple of things we have in the works that we hope will will take shape soon as well um it, it kind of started uh, well it started with sleepwalkers and um i uh, had met with the studio they were interested in in working with me because of the work i had done with spielberg on amazing stories and and that i had directed a couple of movies by then including psycho 4 so they sent him psycho 4 he responded well to it so they met with me and at the meeting they said no oh, this is great uh, you know we're this is going to be great You're, you'll be the director for this but you know, just wait till next week because we have to meet with another director as an obligation to his agent. We have a relationship, and so we have to do this before we can close any deal. So they hired that other director. <laughs> and that other director started taking King's script in, in such a far direction from what King ever intended that um, they ended up unhiring that director. So they they brought me back for another lunch meeting to talk about it. And then at the end of the meeting, they uh, said, OK, well, let's move you into your office. And I didn't I had no idea they were hiring me that day to start prep. <laughs> so that's where it started. Uh, he, he really liked Psycho 4 and the themes in Psycho 4 uh, were similar with mother son relationships to sleepwalkers. So um he really liked what what we did together on on Sleepwalkers, and and said uh, that they were going to be making a mini series of The Stand, and and would I be interested? And here, Sleepwalkers had been a big success theatrically, and it's the movies versus television, and so you know, well, um, yeah, of course I'd be interested. And I'm thinking I really want to do movies, but then I read the script to The Stand, this 460 page script that was dumped <laughs> like a box of phone books on my my porch one day and uh it was amazing the stand of course was my favorite king novel at the time and uh the opportunity to do something so incredible regardless of the medium was overwhelming to me and the fact that i was being asked by stephen king to do this and uh so uh i i gladly said yes and and he was so happy with how sleepwalkers had turned out despite the dealings we had with the ratings board and the studio and the like. Um, and it was a great experience. And King himself was a hands-on executive producer. And, and he was on the set at least half of the shoot um, on location and everything and really had a great time. And so we became friends during the course of that. And, uh, and we had a, a mutual admiration society. He, he really liked how the process went and how we got along as people as well as with, quote, artists without a capital A. And, <laughs> uh, and so it, it led to, you know, uh, Spielberg wanted us to do a movie together called Rose Red. It was a ghost story. And then there were kind of strong disagreements between Spielberg and King about where the, the script was going. So there was an 800-pound gorilla on each of my hands tugging me, the 50-pound the, the chimp in the middle. And uh, so uh, basically at the end of that, they agreed to, to disagree, and, and that fell apart. So it was my follow-up to The Stand was supposed to be a $40 million Steven Spielberg production written by Stephen King. So that didn't happen, and uh, um, it took three years before I shot anything else, and that was The Shining when King said... If Brian De Palma says no to The Shining, would you consider it? <laughs> so thank you, Brian. <laughs> and then that, 
so that brings up uh, The Shining, which, you know, again, in my my naivete, never thought about the Kubrick Shining because we were making something entirely different um, until I started seeing postings that uh, the newly online community saying, they're remaking The Shining? They're assholes. They're horrible people. <laughs> Mick Garris is doing it? Ah, he only does TV, you know. It really... Nasty, nasty stuff. And I, I never even thought about it because I never compared it to Kubrick. He made a great uh, Stanley Kubrick film. And it was well known that King was not very happy with how the movie came out because it didn't really reflect a book that was personally extremely important to him and had a lot of autobiographical issues. So um, we made that together, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. And he was there even more for the shoot. And I do want to just say one thing here, because a lot of people uh, think of me as Stephen King's bitch. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm the guy who's there to, to do uh, at his bidding. There's never once been a time on all of the things that we've done together where he ever said, you know, I think it'd be good if you did it this way. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons we've worked together so well over the years is that there's a mutual respect going on and he knows how much I love my, uh, his work mm -hmm. and the process of bringing that to, to the screen. Um, and he likes working with me because he likes how things have come out together and, and he's really, like I was talking about on Masters of Horror, being a cheerleader to the filmmakers um, as they worked more than anything as a producer, that's what King would be. You know, I'm hap happy to go to, to have him as a source on the set and go, Steve, what do you think of this? Yeah. And have a new idea from him. But uh, there's never been a time where he ever deigned to, to tread on, on my territory as, as a filmmaker, even though it would be welcome. Um, so we just have a really, really great friendship and working relationship. You said as well that The Stand was your favorite Stephen King novel at the time. Where, what surpassed it? Well, they go back and forth. You know, the, the Shining and The Stand, I can't believe I got to adapt both of those. Those are both favorite King novels. And then Bag of Bones also. And uh, Gerald's Game is a favorite of mine that I would love to do that I keep hearing is getting made without me. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's an amazing book that would make an amazing, very bold, very small scale movie. But, um, you know, uh, The Stand and The Shining, depending on my mood, are, are my two favorite King novels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 112263 is amazing as well. Oh, excellent. I've got to say, my favorite's Christine. I've always loved Christine. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. It's a, and I also love Cujo. I mean, when, when, uh, the little boy, well, okay, spoiler alert. <laughs> when the little boy dies in the book, you start turning pages going, you know, wait, this is a dream, right? And mm. it's a dream. And no. he doesn't come back. And it's, it's like, he's dead. And it's like, holy shit. It was such a bold, shocking thing to happen in a book. And that when I saw the movie and that the boy is revived in the movie, I was glad, you know, I was really <laughs> happy. Oh, good. He's not dead <laughs> because it's so devastating in the book. It's quite remarkable. 
I, yeah. I always loved um, Night Shift from, I've still got my book from when I was a kid, and I remember Darabont adapted The Woman in the Room into like yeah. a short, and I always had it on VHS, but it was The Boogeyman that used to freak the shit out of me, and it still does yeah. now. It's a horrible, yeah. and that's, uh, you know, and he doesn't hold back in that, he kills the kids in that, and there yeah. is something in the cupboard, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, I mean, King is a great writer, and I, I think people dismiss him as a horror writer, and his film, his work has just gotten deeper and richer, uh, even the early stuff, when you go back to it, it's, oh my god, the characters are so complex and real and genuine and emotionally based. You know, sometimes they're just really fun things, like Sleepwalkers is nobody's idea of a Bergman film, but uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's really an amazing human being, artist, and, and everything else, you yeah. know. Your Stephen King chat as well did bring up, you mentioned about the ratings board, and I'm sure that, you know, many times throughout your career, you must have knocked heads a few times with the ratings board. Is, is there anything specific that stands out of something that you would have liked to have put into a movie, but they sort of cock-blocked you and you couldn't do it? Well, uh, really, Sleepwalkers is my main tiff I had with them, and the studio would not let me get involved because they felt it was better that they do it. But we had to go back to them five times to make changes, um, and they said, if, if you have to go back again, we're not going to give it an R rating. And an X or an unrating, uh, unrated film from a major studio is, is box office death. So uh, for something like this, that is mostly a younger audience they were going for. And so everything, you know, uh, the, the scene where you see mother and son in bed for the first time and reflected in the mirror are their sleepwalker forms. Uh, that was all intended to be one long shot that starts on the dresser, sees the clothes on the floor, pans up to their feet along their bodies as they are rhythmically making love and then revealing in the mirror with no cuts. Well, because... The bare rump of Brian Krause was going up and down the rating board. <laughs> they would not allow it. You'd see it in mainstream films, but not in horror movies. Because, uh, you know, they were much, they hated horror movies. They may still, I don't know. But, um, yeah, that, you know, we had to make cuts in that. So I had fortunately shot some coverage um, to just in case and because there were other angles of the scene that were really interesting on faces and things so we cut around it but it's inelegant compared to how it was intended and uh, there are a handful of things like that i mean we had to make nine big cuts in that movie to get it released with an r rating and had to go back like i said five times to get it approved that just may, must be so frustrating at times though you know when when especially i've seen things and i'm sure people listening to this will agree that you see stuff that's been cut out of one movie yet something so similar is put into another one and you think well always why, yeah. why was it cut out of that always and yet you know that was a 15 million dollar movie which on studio terms is not a lot of money but still it's 15 million dollars and it's their 15 million dollars not mine so i understand that i'm a hired gun but uh, you know all i can do is is exert as much of my work and influence as possible mm -hmm. on that 
Oh, and we're glad you do, Mick. We really are. And we've talked so much um, about your fantastic career so far. We cannot leave you without asking, uh, as we go into 2016 very shortly, um, please tell everybody about Nightmare Cinema. Uh, Nightmare Cinema is a, a very small-scale thing, but really, really cool. It's It's got the philosophy of Masters of Horror. And what I, what I wanted to do was do something like Masters of Horror, but international. I wanted to do an hourly series where each episode was shot in a different country um, with filmmakers and, and all from that country. And that was a little too ambitious for everybody. But what I have gotten together is it's an anthology movie. It's a collection of, of stories um, from five different filmmakers, five different writers. Well, seven writers, because a couple of them are co-written. Um, and uh, so they're horror stories. One of them I'm writing and directing based on a, a book that I wrote called um, Tyler's Third Act. Uh, Joe Dante is doing an original story that Richard Christian Matheson is writing. Um, Ryuhei Kitamura, who directed um, Versus and Midnight Meat Train, is doing an original script from a Mexican writer named Sandra Bessaril, who's this great novelist and screenwriter. I was going to to direct a movie that she'd written last summer in Mexico in Spanish, which I do not speak, but um, it ended up uh, falling falling apart right before I was set to start prep. Anyway, that's uh, three of them. David Slade is doing uh, uh, an episode based on a, a short story that he loved and he adapted with uh, Lawrence Connolly, who wrote wrote the short story. And um, Alejandro Brugues is doing, who did uh, Sean of the uh, Juan of the Dead, sorry, <laughs> uh, which is a great, great that Cuban. That is fantastic. Uh, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. So he's writing and do uh, and directing an episode. And David Slade, of course, is from the UK and did uh, Thirty Days of Night and Hard Candy, as well as the pilot and several episodes of Hannibal. So it's a it's an international collection of filmmakers all of whom now live in Los Angeles, so we're going to shoot it in L.A. So it's five stories in one movie. That sounds so good. I'm so looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah, I'm sure you are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really fun stuff. So, you know, there's a bunch of things in the works, but that's the one I can announce. There, there are some things that I've actually been attached to another um, uh, independent horror horror film that has a lot of wit and very clever uh, that hopefully we'll be able to announce soon and, and a bunch of other things in the work. Like I said, King and I have a couple of things that we're trying to to get off the ground that I think may be close. So so we'll see what happens. That's good. Well, like we say to all and of our guests. The fun part is yeah, it's doing books too. You know, I've, I've oh, been yeah. publishing, uh, publishing a lot of books in recent years and and it's really such a great thing to be able to do in fact, I just signed my contract for my first um, non-English language book. Uh, my latest novel, Salome, is coming out in Spanish-speaking countries in February. And uh, so that's kind of exciting. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic news. Well, <laughs> really well done. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and as always, well, please keep us updated on everything that you do. You know, we'll do our part. We'll help to promote everything. Um, and we live in this, like we mentioned earlier, the digital age. Is there any way that listeners um, can sort of follow what you're doing online? What's the best way of them keeping up to date with everything that you do? 
Well, you know, there's uh, Mick Garris interviews uh, is is the site with all of the interview shows that we've done. Uh, we try and update that as well. And there's a Mick Garris interviews uh, Facebook page, but I'm on Facebook as well, and it's me. And uh, you know, there's a limit to the number of of friends that I can have, and I think I'm at that limit. But it's certainly a public page, and and you're welcome to check into that. I update it pretty r- regularly, uh, sometimes with my political ranting, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the links uh, will, of course, be on our web page uh, for this show. Uh, and for the, just for the purposes of this episode, uh, we, we, we unfortunately have to say our goodbyes, Ramrod. But uh, please stay online, Mick, and we'll we'll have a little chat between ourselves before you have to go. But it's been, um, I say to a few people, it's been a pleasure. But today has just been absolutely incredible, hasn't it, mate? It's just absolutely <laughs> such an honour to speak to you because you're an absolute hero of mine. So don't ever stop doing what you do because you, you're fantastic well thank you i'm blushing big time <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you mick and uh well hopefully this uh, we can have another show with you soon and catch up on all the new projects that you've got incoming sounds great thanks guys all right excellent thanks mick thank you And there we are, the alarm bell once again, unfortunately, means the end of another show and Ramrod. We could have uh, we could have kept wow. talking for hours, couldn't we? You know what, what I mean? What a joy that was. What a lovely, generous, brilliant horror geek. <laughs> it's so one good. of us, one of us, gobble, gobble, one of us. Yeah, and if you're a horror geek, you'll get that, and if you don't, well... <laughs> Go and watch The Wolf of Wall Street, they do yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> You need to do your homework on horror movies if you don't get that reference. <laughs> uh, well, that was a joy. What a lovely, lovely man and what a pleasure. Definite pleasure. And again, you know, we've said it uh, quite a few times, you know, this whole thing, you know, about Never Meet Your Heroes, um, you know, and you brought it up at the start of the show, mate, you know, we're in the fortunate position where we can talk to people that we've admired and been heroes to us for so many years. And then when you get to chat to them, and they're so lovely, and they're regaling you with stories that are so interesting, it's just absolutely amazing. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm like, uh, that was great. I hardly drank my beer. I was, it was just like watching an amazing documentary in my mind that he was narrating, <laughs> but he's actually there interacting with me. That was, a, that was great. Regular listeners, Ramrod hardly touched his beer. Now, if <laughs> if that doesn't say what an amazing guest Mick Garris has been, I don't know what you know what more can be said. Really, <laughs> that's the truth. I Especially when you walked through the door and you were telling me about this new Polish beer that you'd found. Yeah, um, and you've you've hardly touched it. I think that puts Mick right at the top at the moment. Mick is the man. Honest, I could have listened to him just. To tell us stories about horror and I just felt like I was sharing a beer with him then yeah just, it was so lovely oh Dave that was great <laughs> that was great we'll finish in a minute and then you can finish your beer mate oh yeah I'm, I'm gonna finish in a minute jeez <laughs> thank you thank you very much Mick Garris for horror yes thank you for everything you've given us and for everything you've still got to give us yes indeed yes indeed um, so, like we said, all the uh, links for uh, Mick will be on our webpage for the show. Uh, to find us, you need to go to 60minuteswith.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter, at 60minuteswith. And uh, the same is on Instagram as well, at 60minuteswith. That's a numerical 60, not alphabetical. And on Twitter, Ramrod, people that want to follow mm. you, my friend. I'm always uh, semi-active on there. It's uh, Ramrod's underscore purge. Oh, nice one. 
Um, on the website as well, there is a contact us form, so you can send us an email. If you want to email us direct, it's contact at 60minuteswith.co.uk. We are also on Stitcher Radio and on iTunes. If you would like to spend a couple of minutes leaving us a review on either, or both maybe, of those, uh, it's coming up to Christmas. That would be such an amazing Christmas present. Spend a few minutes leaving us a review. Thank you so much indeed. Don't ask them to leave a review. Tell them to leave a fucking... Should I order them? Should I not be as friendly? Leave a Should fucking I? review if you like it. <laughs> tell us tell us something nice. I will order... There's going to be no more unless you leave us a review. <laughs> They're quick to comment on things on Facebook, I bet. If they don't like an Adele song or they don't like a trailer, fucking tell us how good we are. We lo- we need to know. <laughs> Make us happy this Christmas and New Year. Send Make us it, pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But until then, I'm sure you've enjoyed the show as much as we did because we had a hell of a time, didn't we, mate? Yeah, that was brilliant, man. What a, what an absolute joy. Oh, yes. Um, so now we're going to go off. Ramlam's going to finish his beer. I will pour myself a drink and we will give each other a high five and talk about our great time with Mick and the chat that we had during that show. Uh, but until the next one appears online, which will not be too long from now, um, whoever you are, wherever you are, thank you so much for listening. We will be back again very very soon but until then from myself goodbye and from ramrod spooky goodbye music (laughs) (laughs) gotta leave that in music (laughs) leave that in dave please (laughs) okay then